On today's episode, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're first going to go over the question, should a Bible believer care about health and health care? Or can we just whistle in the wind and hope for the best? Secondly, Mark is going to give us an overview of the options that are available to you for health care, whether it's health care insurance, paying out of pocket, just everything that's in front of you. Because guess what? Newsflash, you need something. You need some provision for taking care of health care costs. And we're going to give you some recommendations on that. All that's coming up. And this is Abraham's Wallet. Join us weekly and create a culture in your family of multi-generational prosperity, spiritually, relationally, physically, intellectually, and financially. Run your home, your dough, like a biblical boss. Well, before we dive into this week's content, I want to give a warning to the people. I'm sitting here, I'm looking at my notes that I've prepared so I can yeah. walk us through the intricacies of insurance for medical medical insurance. But I'm also looking at a little number that tells me the internal temperature of the six racks of ribs I am currently smoking. And when that number hits 160 degrees, we'll be taking a momentary break in our broadcast for me to wrap them in foil, add some brown sugar and Coca-Cola to them and then put them back in the smoker. Fascinating. First of all, let's see it. You can see here, this is the Traeger app. It Uh says the name of my grill, which is Patty Melton Mouth. Okay. Um, And it says all the relevant statistics about what's happening. Interesting that that you're smoking ribs. I too am smoking ribs at this very moment, but- What? but yay verily not not on my smoker on my good friend david's smoker down the street and my deal with him was i'll give you two racks of ribs you smoke them both and i'll let you keep one so he was okay with that deal so that's That's a great deal let's jump in we're calling this episode health and Healthcare." i believe i'd like to start with just the topic of health because um I I always have this memory of our mutual friend, uh, Chris, with whom I lived in college. I don't know where he got this philosophy, but Chris was overweight and in poor health in college. He's he's in much better shape these days in his 50s. I remember him saying very clearly that he didn't care about his body at all. My body is irrelevant. I'm not going to give it any attention. He spent most of his energies on... Dr. Pepper and Taco Cabana in college. And I'm guessing um, he wasn't drinking the wonderful zero sugar version that I'm enjoying right now. No, I don't believe so. That, That leads to other health problems. But I remember thinking, Chris, I'm not so sure that that's really a biblical, uh, idea. Let me just say, uh, on the outset, if you don't know this, that America and America's culture is super unhealthy. So you might not know this, but 42% of Americans are obese. So that's not the only, you you can be unhealthy in several ways, but that's a very easy metric for health. And because of that, we know that obesity leads to all sorts of other things, including heart disease, which is a massive problem in America. 
the the estimated health cost of obesity is right around 175 billion dollars a year. Remember, we did recently did an episode with Shane talking about his weight loss. Who, by the way, I meant to give the people this update, anyways. Um, Shane, who people have become interested in after that episode, has now crested the hundred pound mark and is continuing hey. to drop weight. And now he and I are in a race. Now we we are now neck and neck with my old friend who I always thought as, well, Shane's the Shane's the fat one and I'm the regular one. And now we're the same size. So that's you know, that's troubling for me. Anyhow, it uh what one thing that we went over is how health costs have changed for him as he's lost weight. And of course the amount of money that it will require to maintain his body and to maintain his health goes down dramatically when you lose weight because everything works better in your body. So th those things are really connected for you. If we're going to get into talking about healthcare, I would say one major thing you could do for healthcare is to lose weight. And if you have to outlay a couple of bucks to join a gym or to start taking classes because it makes you accountable to lose weight, that's worth the money. You know, you you talked, Mark, uh, recently about that we can go overboard thinking, well, if it says organic on the package, it's definitely good for me. Yes, we can go overboard. However, if you have to spend a few extra bucks to buy high quality food instead of pre-packaged, saturated everything food, we know that money is worth it. You get that money back in the long term if you are losing weight and eating healthily, okay? I just throw in, when we're talking about spending money to maintain your health, spending money to lose weight for the average American is money well spent. The average annual premiums in 2022 that people spend on healthcare insurance, they're $7,900, a little over $7,900 for single coverage. And for a family, the average premium is about $22,500. So actual healthcare spending is around 12,900 per person. So if you think about that, then if you got a family of four, you're getting a bargain at 22,5. The fact is you are spending money this year on healthcare, whether that's in insurance or you're spending money out of pocket for health needs, healthcare. It's part of all of our lives. And it's something that we need to look into and take seriously. I just wanted to hit right up front before we let you kind of go with with numbers and practicalities, Mark, I wanted to talk about, biblically speaking, should Christians care about health? Before yeah. I launch into that, is there anything you want to say up front? You might have just heard those numbers and say, I don't spend anything close to that on healthcare and I have insurance. Those numbers include what your employer spends on your insurance. Right. So a lot of people, if they get healthcare through their employer, don't feel that in the same way. But I guarantee you, your employer feels it and would be happy to pay you a whole lot more money if they didn't have to pony up for insurance. So just don't don't write us off because you think those numbers sound crazy. The only other thing I'd say is I've been reading some some Bible stuff that touches on this just in the last two days. So I'm oh. really excited to hear what you have to say. When we're asking the question, should Christians care about health? I think there's probably been a dramatic upsweep 
in that in that interest in the last few years. There's just kind of an interesting thing happening with Christians in in general. John MacArthur's People just made a movie. It's just come out last night. It's called The Essential Church, and it's the it's the story of how they opposed the California government during lockdowns and said the government can't tell us when to meet as a church, and they ended up winning that. MacArthur says the reason we made that movie is because we want to encourage other pastors that the next go-around, the next time this happens, we want more churches to stand. And I think that's interesting culturally because I think Christians— more and more feel that we are outside of the mainstream. And I think more and more we kind of feel ownership over our food and I, I, I hope our health. But uh, in case that's a question for you about the undergirdings of is there a biblical foundation, I'll just throw out a couple of verses here. Third John verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you might be in good health as it goes with your soul. Your being in good health is what God wants. He, he wants you to be in health, body, soul, and spirit, okay? 1 Timothy 5.23, don't drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You know, wine was used as for medicinal purposes back in the day. Um, it was safer than some of the water they could come by. And, and I only want to make the point here that we care about health. It's God, it, God wants you to be healthy, and the onus for health isn't all on God. So Paul gave Timothy, let me make some recommendations for you, as I'm sure you're taking care of your health, Timothy. Why don't you kind of consider drinking a little wine? I just think it makes the point there that we don't just sort of pray to God, hey, you know, keep me healthy while I live however I want to live. There's some responsibility on us. It's not all on God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is probably ground zero for this discussion. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own you were bought with a price. So here comes this very powerful phrase, glorify God in your body. We all should probably wrestle with what does that mean? Now that section is about sexual impurity. So there's no question about that one, that glorifying God in your sexual habits is a big deal. However, it probably has implications outside of that arena. So we have to make good choices to take care of our bodies. They are God's temple. What, what does it mean that our bodies are God's temple? One is that if you think of the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem, what was that thing? Well, it was something that was made by people for God's honor. So God didn't build it, nor was it God's job to sweep it up. It wasn't God's job to bring in fresh bread. It wasn't God's job to wash the utensils in there or to put oil in the lamps wasn't God's job. It was people's job for God's glory. So what do you think it means that your body is God's temple? Well, there's a profound thing that, that this, again, this is a New Testament writer, Paul, who's writing this. There's a profound thing to say, God, at one point, his spirit actually resided in the temple, and now his spirit resides in you, and you're given this body as a temple of his. 
that means that you are in the building industry for your body. You're building this thing for God's glory and maintaining it is your job. So what does it need when it comes to water and nutrition and food and sleep and keeping out impurities, et cetera? That's all on you. It is on us to actually do research as much as we need to. What should I be eating? Is, is the food that I'm eating clean? Is the water that I'm taking in clean? Am I getting enough sleep that, that serves this body? Because this body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's ours to beautify and to furnish and to maintain. I, I mean, that's that's the passage that I just happened to be studying. Uh, oh, well, there you go. And to me, the biggest thing that jumped off the page was that word, so. Like, I've always heard your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you like, were, just know that. Yeah, you yeah. Can just know that. Yeah. And you were bought with a price. And I always thought, yeah, my soul was bought with a price, and so it's worth something. Uh, but then it hit me really hard the other day because it said, so because you were bought with a price purchased by the blood of Jesus, then you need to glorify God in your body, in your physical body. And right. I just had never sat and thought about that uh, really before that connection. I would say that kind of as American evangelicals, we have really divorced uh, the physical from the spiritual in many cases. And yes. I just got back from a couple weeks in Europe where I was looking at all this art that was mostly funded and produced by people who were trying to honor the Lord with art. Now there's a whole, we could do a whole episode on yes, whether it could. was good or bad, uh, but, but so much art and physical uh, even human bodies that are portrayed in ways that are meant to point us towards the Lord. And I would just say that that divorce of spirit and body, it's not something that's existed from the beginning of Christendom. Uh, it has happened much more recently. So I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, and I think today we're just going to cover that small slice of this, which is how do we navigate a very complex and financially treacherous system to take care of the what happens when our body needs help piece of this. But we've done episodes in the past on how to take care of the body. We will do more in the future on how to take care of the body. And I, I agree. It's, it's a place where a lot of people either don't spend any money because they think, well, I'm going to save money and it's going to be fine. Or they spend a ton of money that they don't have and think that it's just their right to, to you know, have all of the health products and whatever it is they're spending on that they could possibly want. So, yeah, Revelation says that um, in the world to come, there will be no death or mourning or crying or pain. Uh, however, in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. And in this fallen world, problems happen. We've had medical issues in my family. There have been medical issues in your family, Mark a lot in the last couple of years. And when they do happen, when problems come along, the Bible gives a multiplicity of solutions. And so I would like to rip quickly through uh, something we refer to as five capitals and what the Bible has to say about health problems that come along. The first capital, the most important capital is spiritual capital. And what should you do when health problems come along? You should pray. You should talk to God. 
I don't know if you know this, the first name that God gave himself in all of scripture, it was the first way he revealed himself to the people. I am the Lord who heals you. This is the first I am revelation to the people. He had, he had said that to Moses, that that's my name, the I am. But I am the God who heals you. And so we should be praying to him. Repeatedly in scripture, you will see prayer. Prayer heals. He wants to heal people which takes me right to the second capital is relationship. So call the brothers to pray. You've heard this passage before, James chapter five. Is any one of you sick? But listen to how James describes this. If you're sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer often offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now, there's a kind of a unique thing there that there is a connection in the Bible with sin and illness, not always, but it's a possibility. So if, if someone's going over to pray for someone to be healed, there is a question in the room, which is, might this be on account of sin? That's not out of bounds, but we also don't believe, well, all sickness has to do with sin. We don't believe that. But this is saying that this is one of the relationship things we do. We call people to pray, and we're supposed to, we are supposed to visit people who are sick and to give them grace and to give them care. He likes us visiting and caring for people who are sick. He commanded his guys in Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick. He told them, go look for sick people and heal them. So that's, that's relational. I'm going to throw physical and intellectual in the same bucket for this one. Those are the next capitals, physical capital, intellectual capital. That's kind of what we're talking about. Ask yourself, what did I eat? How, gosh, I had a rash. I had a reaction. Did I, what did I eat that's done this? What's my rest like? I just fainted, you know, in the middle of a busy work week. Well, what's my rest been like? Am I drinking water? Am I smoking? Et cetera. There's a couple of verses that talk about this physical capital with regards to health. Proverbs 17, 22 says, a joyful heart works good like a medicine. This is one of those things where we now know medical science tells us that like dopamine gets released in you as you laugh and it has this magical healing property throughout your body. But the Bible just said it this way, a merry heart and laughter does good like a medicine. Proverbs 3 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So seriously, um, use your intellectual capital. If the Bible says that fearing God and turning away from evil will help heal your flesh and bring refreshment to your bones, please ask yourself that question. Is there anywhere in my life where I don't fear God or that I need to turn away from evil? That would be smart. That'd be using your brain and applying these principles, biblical principles. Acts 27, 34 says, I urge you to take some food because it will give you strength. So again, to your point, Mark, we, we're not these people that think the only thing that counts is my spiritual life. You won't find that in the Bible. It's not a biblical idea. In Acts 27, really simple thing. You know what? You seem weak. Why don't you eat better food? That's that's what's there. Um, and finally, and this kind of takes us into the thing we're going to spend more time on, is financial. So we talked that you could use financial capital to produce health, but what about 
responding to illness or even preventative by way of insurance, um, the Bible would have no problem with that as well. So you could pay a physician if you're in trouble. I just want to throw this out because I think there's there's some weird residue in Christian circles that's kind of Christian science. You know, Christian science believes there shouldn't be any illness of any kind. And if there is, it's a fabrication of your brain or there's some sin stuck in you somewhere. But um, and you know, the say- story... When you say Christian science, we're talking about sort of the the armchair scientists in Christianity, not the religion started by Mary Baker Eddy, right? No, I'm speaking specifically of the false religion invented by maker Mary Baker Eddy. Oh, okay. Uh, we, we are we are not Christian scientists, and I use a capital S. We okay. are not that cult. That cult, Christian scientists believe that all illness is an illusion or that it comes from some trauma in your past or some kind of sinful belief. So all illness can only be dealt with from a spiritual, mental, emotional place. Now, we don't believe that. We believe there might be no sin present, but there might just be a problem that needs to be dealt with. You know, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says this guy found this guy had been beat up and he bound his wounds and he poured on oil and wine on his wounds. Why did he do that? Because those things worked like medicine. They cleansed the the injuries and they set them up for healing. They worked as as ancient medicine. So the Bible doesn't have any problem with you using medical tools to deal with illness. Jesus also said in Luke 10:34 we always, we always think of the second half of this when he says it's not the sick, it's not the healthy that need a physician, but the sick. And then he starts talking about himself, but let's just deal with the setup. Sick people do need a physician and Jesus has no problem with that. He's like, go see a doctor. That's fine. So we're not Christian scientists. We believe that everybody gets ill. Everybody has accidents. My family's in a car wreck, broken legs. These kind of things happen and we should deal with them. So there's no biblical reason to not use any methods at our disposal to improve health. All right, let's use that as a jumping off point, Mark, for getting into the discussion of, okay, if a Christian is well within their rights to do preventative health care or to deal with illness, what are your thoughts on how to best do that? Is it a scam to do health insurance? Talk, talk us through some of that. Yeah, so it's a good question. I think, unfortunately, healthcare expenses are one of the only things that I see that can take a financially rock solid family and run them straight into the cliffs on the beach and blow their whole scene up. So, somebody who's doing everything otherwise quite well, but has no health insurance, could go bankrupt even if they have a couple million dollars in the bank in the wrong set of circumstances when it comes to healthcare needs. That's exactly and, right. You know, we would, if it was you or I, we would tell someone if they said, well, I have no health insurance and my child has cancer and the treatment's $2 million, we would say, well, you got to figure out a way to scrape that up because we, we do think that life is certainly worth more than money. So um, most of us, if that was our family and we're thinking about our kids, we'd say, well, yeah, we'd spend every dollar we have to take care of our family. That's Um, right. It's something that 
that can cost a lot in our country. Yeah, let, let, let me just say a word about that because you hear from time to time, you hear people lament the, the, the world that we live in and the state of healthcare in America. And I know that things are a little crazy and you might address this, how the, the insurance scene that we live under really inflates prices. But when I hear people wringing their hands and saying, you know, isn't basic health care a human right? Shouldn't, shouldn't, if, if something goes wrong, shouldn't someone take care of, we're so, we have all this medical technology. And if I come down with something, shouldn't someone take care of it? And I just go back to think to, you know, life on the prairie or life in Bible times and if somebody goes to the effort to become uh, medically educated and they move into a town and they go, guess what, you guys, you now have a doctor in your town because I can do that. Do you think the assumption is, well, then you should just care for everyone's medical needs and live off the berries that you find in the forest? That, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, medical care is like anything else. The, a worker deserves his wages. So we should, I would like for us to get off of this kind of socialist mindset that basic healthcare is a human right and that everyone deserves to have things done for you. You don't deserve that. This is, this is just a trade that somebody has like laying bricks and you should pay them for what they, what they do for you. So I don't think that's a Christian or a biblical mindset that we all deserve free healthcare just because we're alive. So I'd like to, I wanted to just say that and then you can continue. I've kind of set the table and said, healthcare expenses in the United States could bust you. Uh, and that means that almost for everybody out there, even extremely wealthy people, I recommend having some form of health insurance. And there's a few options. I think our goal today is to cover um, three or four of the most popular ones and give yeah. you some of the pros and cons because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast want to, for example, start a business. And we'll talk about this in a second, but the most common way that most Americans get their health insurance is they go get a job working for somebody that provides health insurance as a benefit. Right. We're going to talk about, well, what happens if you say, I want to start a business or I want to be a full-time real estate investor or who knows what? Where you're not an employee primarily anymore. How do you how do you deal with this? How do you not leave your family exposed to the risk of one person gets a severe illness and it could totally collapse our whole financial picture? So for me, I'm gonna answer no. Health insurance is not a scam. Just because health insurance is not a scam does not mean that there is not some scammy components to <laughs> how it all goes down. Maybe you would just call it dramatic inefficiencies in the system. That's true. Overall, most families, if not, if not all families it, living in the United States, need some form of health insurance. Why don't you talk us through some of the options for how, how do we shore up idea? You know, one of our great beliefs around here is... Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says that we, we know that it's wise to prepare for the future and we know that trouble is coming. So what are the, what are the options for a, a family for shoring up future medical care? You just go and you pay for health care when you need it. 
for the most part, uh, there's a there's kind of a secret cash pay price uh, for most services. So if you show up at a physician, they might tell you, well, a well child visit at the pediatricians is $250. And you'd say, well, I'm paying cash. I don't have insurance. There's a good chance that that doctor's going to say, ah, well, then in that case, we will charge you $160 or whatever the price is. It, um, will every doctor take personal payment? That's a good question. I I tend to think that most of them would. I, I, I don't know. There might be a listener out there who says, I'm a doctor and I don't take any personal payment no matter what. Okay. Um, but uh, I think it's very common. I, I know if you show up at an emergency room and need care and you don't have insurance, they're going to treat you and they'll be happy to take your money uh, to pay the bill uh, if you've got any. That option exists. It's usually not a great way to approach ongoing care because like I said, that works for a well child visit. It works even for, hey, I broke my arm and it's going to be $1,000 or $1,500. It doesn't work so well when you get a leukemia diagnosis. Right. It's going to be a million dollars by the time right. all is said and done. The only other thing I wanted to say on cash payments there are more and more physicians that are saying this whole system seems to be inefficient, not really working in behalf of, of my patients. So I'm going to open what's called a boutique practice. And that used to be the, the domain of the hyper wealthy, that they would have their own private physician who was on call 24-7 and they could call upon uh, when they had questions or needed a doctor visit. There's more and more doctors that are opening these practices and it's like a subscription model and it's whatever, $250 a month and you can see me when you need to. I'll answer questions. I can be your personal physician. And a lot of those doctors don't take insurance at all. That's an option. What I will say is they're not going to be the ones that help you in the events of those super catastrophic circumstances. Maybe you're going to get to this, but when you mention like the leukemia diagnosis, Aren't there some insurance plans where it's just catastrophic care? Yeah, and we're going to talk about that for sure. Yes, there, there are plans that it's just to cover you in the, in the event of those really big deal situations. But for most people, you might end up wanting to go to a boutique practice that's cash only because you have some kind of specific needs or you found somebody you really like and that's how they operate. A sidebar, I will say, be careful. There's some awesome doctors who that's how they work. And then there's a bunch of people, really kind of hucksters <laughs> that that's how they work. And they want to sell you a lot of things and give you tests that you don't need. So be yeah. careful in that space. I see a lot of money that's flushed down the toilet in those circumstances. For most people, you're going to want some form of insurance or insurance-like solution that can cover you for your ongoing healthcare needs. The the options on the table, we talked a little bit about employer-provided private insurance, and I'll just mention three things that you might want to look for, because a lot of you are still in a spot where employer-provided insurance is what you have available, but usually you have some choice in what type of we insurance. We like tips. Give us some tips. There's three main types of insurance programs that, that are popular right now in the U.S. One's called an HMO One's called a PPO and one's called an EPO. Have you heard of these, Stephen? I don't think I've heard of EPO. Yeah, EPO is one that less people hear of, but you've heard of HMO and PPO. I sure have. All you really need to know is that HMOs are smaller networks, usually owned, sometimes even by the insurance provider, but they usually cost less and 
you can think of it as you're you're more limited in who you get to choose as your doctor. You they really push you hard to operate within their small network of providers. A PPO, you have a lot more flexibility to use other doctors that are outside of the network, but you're going to pay more money for it and usually you're going to have a higher out-of-pocket max for those. The newer EPO is you can only use doctors in the network and that's usually owned. It's like one system insurance and everything and you buy in and you have access to the whole deal, but you get no coverage if you leave the network. So those are those are choices. The other thing that you'll see more and more for most employer provided insurance, and this is going to be important as we talk about the other types of plans is you'll have a choice between what they're calling more of a traditional healthcare plan and a high deductible healthcare plan. And a high deductible healthcare plan, the government defines it as a family deductible of $3,200 or more, meaning you have to spend $3,200 on healthcare before the insurance is going to pay a dollar. That's in addition to your premiums, which you talked about at the beginning. People are paying, on average, a family's paying $22,000 a year in premiums. Now, in addition to that, with a high deductible plan, you'll have to pay whatever the deductible is before they start paying anything. Most of those plans do not include preventative care in that calculus. So most plans will actually cover preventative care completely. Uh, So you don't have to pay to take your kids to the pediatrician. You don't have to pay to get your annual physical, things like that. And why why would you do a plan like that? Is it because when it, when it kicks in, it, it eats up more, and you pay up le- you pay less once it kicks in? Well, the primary benefit to the insurer is you're covering the the first bit of cost, sure, which is the part that you're most likely to use. So the higher the deductible, and there's high deductible plans where your deductible is twenty thousand dollars. The higher de- the deductible, the less chance there is for the insurance company to have to pay anything. And they are going to give you a way lower premium. So a really high deductible plan might have a much lower premium than another plan, which, uh, you know, you could have a plan with a $500 deductible for a whole family. And there's a good chance that they're going to be shelling out some money for healthcare for you. If that's your plan, you have five kids. Uh, So they're going to charge you a higher monthly premium for that plan than they would for a high deductible plan. Is it Um, a good rule of thumb that if you can, if you can, absorb a higher out-of-pocket cost that that you do a higher deductible so that you can have lower premiums? It depends is the answer. It depends a lot. And and I don't think we're going to go through in this episode, like the nitty gritty, how to choose exactly which plan is right for you. Uh, that's something that, for example, we do when we're working with families is talk through, let's look at all the plans. Even if you're just an employee, let's look at all the plans your healthcare or your employer provides and figure out based on what you spend every year, which one is the optimal solution for you. One thing I'll say is that you must have a high deductible plan in order to have an HSA account. If you want to to put money into an HSA account, which we've talked about a bunch on this show, you have to have a high deductible healthcare plan at the time that you're putting money in. You can leave your high deductible plan and you still own your HSA and can use it later. But when you're putting money in, you've got to be participating in a high deductible plan. I was going to say rules of thumb. If you know that there's a ton of big healthcare expenses coming up, like next year, you're going to get two surgeries, have a baby, and you're you know, you you have a son that's trying out competitive skateboarding for the first time. So you're planning on a broken leg. 
then you might actually say we're going to pay more in premiums to have a lower deductible plan and uh, that'll probably work out in your favor. If you say, well, we just don't use medical care. We need that backstop against total emergencies, but we would like to pay as little as possible in premiums and take some of that risk on ourselves. A higher deductible plan might be appropriate. Give us an overview of options outside of healthcare plans that are covered by your employer. Option number one that most people think of now, this did not exist 10 years ago, but would be the Affordable Care Act plans. When I say Affordable Care Act, you think what, Stephen? Inflation. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I knew you were going to have some snarky comments about your disdain for the political Socialism? Yeah. Fascism? Uh, Obama-era Affordable Health Care Act, what it did is it basically said that we're going to make market pl- a marketplace of health insurance plans available to anyone who wants to buy it. And for a lot of people, the government is going to kick in some subsidies to make those plans more affordable. For every state in the United States, you can go on at your state's healthcare marketplace website, look up what plans are available. Some states have a ton of great plans at great prices, and other states have terrible options, but everybody has something. And you can find out when you enter your income info and your demographic info for how many people are in your family, you can find out how much it would cost you for a variety of plans. The things that are worth keeping in mind is that the subsidies for these are between 100% and 400% of the federal poverty level. So if you make the federal poverty level or four time, up to four times that, you'll get some subsidy for these plans. What do you think the federal poverty level is for a family of Shoot. four in 2023, Steve? For a family of four? Family of four, average federal poverty level. $27,000. Did you cheat? No. It's $27,750 for a family of four. Yes! That is why you have been a, a guest co-host on the Abraham's Wallet podcast for so many weeks running because you come Incredible. up- Yeah. I'll just give you some quick pros and cons for Affordable Care Act marketplace plans. Pros, these companies are actually insurance companies. They're tightly regulated. They have to cover pre-existing conditions. So you can show up to one of these plans in the middle of stage four cancer and they can't change your coverage uh, prices. You can go buy one of these plans and you'll be covered. That's one of the, I would say, for most people, good things that came out of the Affordable Care Act is you can't lose your job and then suddenly be unable to acquire health insurance. These companies are adequately capitalized to cover catastrophic expenses. So we're going to talk about health sharing plans. And this is one of the, the cons of health sharing plans is that I'm not convinced that very many of them could cover if a whole bunch of people in their network had huge health expenses all at once. And for families that are inside of that subsidy band that we talked about, so between 27750 and four times that amount, uh, subsidies can cover a big portion of the cost of an Affordable Care Act plan. The average monthly tax credit that families get is about $500 that, that you buy these plans, so it's not insignificant. And if your income is below 150% of the federal poverty line, you can get zero premium plans in most states, so free free healthcare plans. You're a candidate for subsidies if if you make $110,000? That's right. So what, what, how stupid our government is with money, I think is what's illustrated there. Well, 
check check the price on these before you get too excited because you might get a subsidy, but you're still shelling out some some big bucks for that for that plan. Sure. Yeah, we're all shelling out big bucks for that. That's right. Couple couple other things to keep in mind. It's easy to get an HSA eligible plan uh, on most of these, so you can you can do that. And like I said before about employer covered plans, preventative care is covered in almost all cases. So those are the pros. What are the cons of going to the marketplace and buying a plan? Uh, depending on your state, they can be super expensive. So eighteen hundred bucks a month for a family is not unusual at all. And some states don't have a great network of plans and providers. So you might see that my only option, I can see these three doctors and they're all, you know, graduated from medical school of the Bahamas and I don't love it. Not everyone qualifies for the subsidies, even if you're inside of the income band. So you would not qualify for any tax credits if you are married and filing taxes separately. So if that was your case, that would be it. I thought it was funny. The IRS said, if you refuse to file income tax returns, you don't get the subsidies. It's like, well, yeah, because that leads to the third group of people that don't get subsidies. And that's those who are incarcerated. So oh, gosh, um, if I, I don't know, I would be delighted if I found out that there's an Abraham's wallet, like listening party on Wednesday mornings at the federal penitentiary that guys get okay, together. That would be incredible. But uh, if that's you, you got to wait until you're out before you can buy one of these plans. And then lastly, if you have access to an affordable employer-sponsored plan, which there's definitions for what that means, but basically if your employer provides insurance, but you don't like it and you want to go out and buy a different plan, you don't get a subsidy. So that that's kind of who doesn't get a subsidy. And those are some of the cons of these Affordable Care Act plans. Okay. When you mention, I just have to throw in that when you mention somebody getting a dodgy medical degree, I can only think of one person that is the wacky doctor on The Simpsons, Dr. Nick Riviera. Dr. Nick Riviera. Well, if it isn't my old friend, Mr. McCraig, with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. Okay, so there's one thing that has become increasingly common, which is these like cooperatives, these medical sharing, cost sharing programs that a lot of Christians do. Would you tell us about those? I will. But first, I'm going to tell you about the last kind of traditional healthcare plan option. Oh, that okay. if, you, if you can get it, it's the best one. Uh, Medicaid is the government program that provides free healthcare basically to those who have extremely low income. And you might say, well, that's great. I'm not impoverished, Mark, just because I'm starting a new business. But I have clients who have benefited tremendously from this in the first year or two of starting a new business, for example, because they go, well, our tax return reflected no income this year. And we prepared for that. We found out that in our state, we were eligible to all get free health care for a year. And it's accepted almost everywhere, uh, just like Medicare, which is the government health insurance for folks 65 and older. The thing that I've learned as I've, I've seen people go through this is a lot of states actually have, they, they want people to take advantage of their Medicaid plans. I have clients who have gone on Medicaid when they were starting a new business and got the whole family on, and then they did well. They made a lot of money the next year. And they said, well, I guess we get off Medicaid. And the state goes, well, we have a transitional plan. You can stay on for another year uh, and have ended up saving tens of thousands of dollars. Interesting. Uh, so 
every state's plan is a little bit different, but all of them have to offer it up to at least 133% of that federal poverty line. So if you're making 133% of that, it's worth investigating. Would my family qualify for Medicaid? Some states offer it at a much higher level of income for children. So you might say, well, I can leave my children on a plan like that and I can go purchase a plan myself that would be less expensive than the whole family. So check into Medicaid, especially if you're in a transition period where you happen to be making less money for a year or two. I think a lot of our audience might be curious about is what you mentioned, these health sharing plans. Yeah. There's first thing to say about health sharing plans, they're not insurance. So the government and the IRS does not consider them to be insurance but they work a lot like insurance for most people. So they all are a little bit different. Some of them almost exactly function like an insurance company where you pay a monthly amount. And when you have expenses over a threshold, they start kicking in and and helping you cover those. Others are really interesting because you pay in to be a member. And then when you have a healthcare bill, you submit it to the company and they send you uh, once they approve it, they send your healthcare bill to someone else in the network, and those people will send you a check directly, and that counts as their premium for the month. Right. And there, there's all sorts of kind of setups here, but there's a few kind of pros and cons that I would say apply to most, if not all, of of the health sharing programs. The biggest pros they are less expensive on a monthly basis. And they will cover most of the the big healthcare needs that could sort of bankrupt a family. Little asterisk there, a lot of them you have to either buy a separate plan or buy an add-on in order to cover what they consider catastrophic expenses. So depending on the the plan, that could be as low as $100,000 up to like over $500,000. But there are, like we said, there are healthcare situations that can cost you more than $500,000. So if you're thinking about doing a health sharing option, 100% you should add on the catastrophic coverage um, because that's really the most important thing in my mind is we can deal with, we can use debt, we can, there's all sorts of ways to deal with $20,000 of expense, but it's very hard to deal with a million dollars of expense. That's really insurance. That's like healthcare insurance. The same way that you'd have flood insurance on your house or you'd have insurance for in case some horrible wreck happens and I need to take care of someone else's medical bills. There's some, if you pass this threshold where it's costing hundreds of thousands of dollars a week for the kind of care that you that your family needs, that's impossible to think of you spending that money and destroying the family wealth. This is why insurance exists because that's a possibility. I can take care of myself. I could have a brain injury, you know, have all kinds of medical bills. I have to have something, you know, a, a, a rip cord that's outside of my family's wealth. And that's what insurance is for. Would you agree? I think about that with all types of insurance because a lot of people start talking to an insurance salesperson that talk, uh, you know, if you've repriced your homeowner's insurance recently, which you should do every two or three years. It's funny how the insurance salesperson sometimes starts saying, well, we could add this on and it's only $500 if you get your big screen TV stolen, we'll install a new one for it. And I'm thinking that's not going to bankrupt me. I want to be absolutely not hoping 
that I use the policy. It's just like with life insurance. Like, yeah, if I die, my family's going to get a big chunk of money. Right. I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. Uh, right. It's there to protect against a really bad situation, not to uh, provide something that, that you go, well, that's kind of nice that that happened. Totally agree. The disaster coverage is important there. You know, and that's something you you might have to add on additionally to a health sharing plan. For a family of five, I often see families paying, for example, three to four hundred bucks a month for participation in one of these networks. So that's cool. Uh, much less than they would spend to be a part of traditional insurance. Another pro, you can receive care generally from any doctor. So in some cases, the the program will kick back a little bit smaller percentage of the coverage if you go outside of their network of provide preferred providers. But a lot of the the networks just say we don't care who you use. You're in the eyes of the provider. You're paying cash, so we don't care. Use any doctor you want, um, and that's cool compared to a lot of insurance plans where you first have to check if the doctor's on your plan, and that can be kind of annoying. Another pro is you can join at any time. You don't have to wait for an open enrollment period, which you do for the Affordable Care Act plans. You you can just decide tomorrow, hey, I don't have insurance. I'd like to have it, so I'm going to go buy it and participate in these plans. And similarly, you're not locked in to a long-term contractor agreement with almost any of them. Uh, so you could do it for three months, and then you get a job that provides insurance, and you say, okay, we're not going to do it anymore. So that's my pros. How's this sounding? Are you feeling like, hey, maybe we'd like to be a part of a health sharing plan? No, um, but it sounds like, I mean, it just sounds like you really need someone to help you through all these options. There's just so, there's so much to consider that it would be overwhelming, that you would want somebody to actually get real numbers in front of you that are, again, specific to your family, to what your monthly uh, budget is. And it's just, it's just, there's just so many options. The last thing I want to cover on these, and we could do a whole episode going through individual uh, health sharing companies because there's unique components to each of them and sort of that's that's a deep dive that, I don't know, maybe we do it someday. Maybe we do it offline in our circle group where people have specific questions about individual providers here. But there are a lot of cons that I think people don't consider when they participate in these. The biggest one is number one, these generally don't cover you for pre-existing conditions. Um, Or they might require a really long waiting period if you're going to get any coverage. So if you have diabetes and you show up, they might not say, we're not helping you with any costs that we consider even related to that. That's a big deal. You know, I talk to people all the time who are doing everything they can to keep a healthy body and yet they have a diagnosis that somewhere in the back of their healthcare chart uh, could be used to say, well, this diagnosis we think later on caused this problem and we're not paying for any of the coverage. So that's a that's a big one uh, when it comes to these plans and it's pretty important to, to make sure that's not you if you're going to go through a health sharing plan. The second big one to me is they don't cover routine preventative care in most cases. That's not a big deal because most routine care you can pay for out of pocket. It can result in foregoing important care, either for your kids where you go, well, they're not sick, so we're not going to go to our normal doctor visits. And the, the data would say that that results in problems. Obviously, most of the time it doesn't. 
but once in a while, something important gets missed and it has has impact. Uh, so routine care, you need to really ask yourself, am I going to spend money that I'm not forced to spend to go take care of routine preventative care if I'm going to do this? If the answer is no, I'd probably skip it. Then these might end up costing you more in the long run uh, because something gets missed that could have been caught. I talked a little bit about this, but these are not actually considered insurance. So you don't get those Affordable Care Act subsidies. A big one for business owners is you can't take a insurance deduction for what you pay into a health sharing plan. So if you're a business owner, you can deduct what you pay in healthcare premiums, uh, right? Not, not for a health sharing plan. So that's a that's a big change in cost, and sometimes that lowers the traditional plan's cost by quite a bit. Clearly, the government's attitude about these things is you're not playing the game the right way. Yeah, to some degree, I, I think that's true. That there's an incentive that they have to protect their. Uh, humongous uh, medical establishment system. Um, yeah, you can't use an HSA with one of these unless you purchase what's called an HSA qualified MEC, which is a minimum minimum essential coverage health insurance plan, and that's kind of like one of those things we talked about that sits on top of these and covers catastrophic stuff. That's a big rabbit trail we could go down, but just know that if you want to do an HSA and a health sharing ministry, you need to buy something else that goes with it. And it can't just be the one that the the health sharing ministry sells as their catastrophic thing. It has to be a qualified minimum essential coverage plan. Gotcha. Just two more, two more cons. One, a lot of doctors hate it if they get paid via the sharing program uh, because these programs, some of them not the most efficient and can can be difficult to navigate, slow to pay, things like that. I would imagine that insurance companies are also a horrible pain in the neck for most physicians, but they've kind of got a system to, to right. run that stuff. So these are less popular still, even though they're growing in popularity and a lot of doctors don't like to deal with it. And lastly, there's some question, I would call it questionable limitations on coverage that are kind of related to lifestyle. Uh, a big one for some of our listeners is there's no maternity coverage in most of these plans unless you aren't pregnant when you enter. And then you have to check because some plans will cover maternity and others won't. I thought this was interesting as I looked at the most popular plan and looked at their limitations. You can use no tobacco or we don't cover you, you know, and that to me is an interesting one just to to be aware of that if I smoke a cigar at man camp, is that count? Uh, am I... I don't know. There's no STD coverage because that's viewed as the result of unchristian choices, which it might be. There's no alcohol-related coverage. So if you drink a beer and that's written down on a police report because you rear in somebody and your neck hurts, we're going to call that a DUI type event. Um, and lastly, you must, uh, for the largest plan in the country, you must have a Christian faith and be attending church regularly. I thought that one was interesting to know, like, well, are they are they auditing this? I, I don't know. But Is that Samaritan's Purse? No, that's uh, MediShare. I took a bunch of notes on each of the individual sharing options. I think that's, like I said, something we could cover in depth, maybe in a different format uh, sure. when people want to dive deep on this. But that's an overview of what the health sharing ministries look like. I do think they're a totally viable option for a lot of families 
especially as you're kind of making that transition. If, if you're starting a business, for example, and yes. you just, you need some coverage and you just flat out can't afford 1800 bucks a month. Right. Um, this is a good option. Just make sure that you've kind of covered those, those areas that can sort of be lurking in the corners and, and bite you if, if you haven't taken care of them, particularly that catastrophic insurance, uh, spot and the pre-existing conditions limitations. Right. So there's a lot of ways to handle, obviously, getting yourself covered in the short term and in the long term, all of the possibilities that are out there. I just want to say again that preventative healthy habits like eating and sleeping well, drinking enough water, doing regular exercise will steadily improve any person's health and give you the strength to do whatever God's given you to do. But if we lack wisdom and let our bodies fall into disrepair, we risk the, the risk increases dramatically for sudden sickness or injury. And healthcare is about caring for your body and your mind and your emotions, the whole person, so that you can reach your maximum ability, whatever that is. God created us body, soul, and spirit, and we must not ignore our body's health. So uh, Christians should be involved with preventative health care and, and be making plans to deal with injuries and illnesses before they occur, because that's how life works around here. So I wanted to give you a little overview into your options out there. And um, if you need help uh, choosing exactly the one right for you, we, we would always recommend that you would go see a financial professional to walk you through your options, help you make those choices. Anything else for people who are feeling like, huh, how do I, how do I navigate all of this stuff? Mark, where would you send them? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I'm not trying to, to plug too hard here, but it's one of those good litmus tests for, do you have a financial advisor, uh, is can you go to the, whoever you're going to for money advice and investment management and stuff like that, and ask them to look at a variety of health insurance plans and tell you which one is best for your family. Um, if so, they're probably providing some comprehensive advice. That's a good thing. If they would say, well, that's not what I do. I just, I manage your investments. Then I would say, that might not be somebody who's actually providing advice to you. They're just right. sort of doing one little thing that frankly, a computer can probably do as well. Think about that. And, and if you if you need recommendations for people, obviously that's what you and I do uh, for work is we help people with kind of comprehensive planning. But we've also got a network of people that we trust that, sure. that do it elsewhere and can can happily connect folks with with people who offer that type of advice. So I think it's a it's a treacherous area to navigate. It's not straightforward. You can paralyze yourself doing over analysis on this. Yes. But I, I would say that we tried to give the high level and hopefully you feel a little more equipped to at least understand the landscape. And make a decision that works for your family. And I would I would encourage you to put something in place, but then act act in confidence and not lose too much sleep over it once you've chosen a plan that seems like it's it's suited for your family, because you can always pivot if it if if it's not working well. And back to your earlier point, how often do you think that people should be reviewing their situation? Well, if you're an employee, I always say there's open enrollment every year and you you know, we're doing this podcast in July. It'll probably come out in August or September. Open enrollment usually happens in October or November. That's a good time to just look at the healthcare plans and not just don't just look at the plans and choose it based on the premium or whatever. 
look at what you actually spent on healthcare and say, would we have been way better off with a high deductible plan or should we have chosen a, a lower deductible plan and a higher premium? Uh, so right. every year is a good time to at least ask the question. But the other time people tend to really dig into this is when there's a big change coming. So we're having a baby. We are starting a business. We are moving. So all of those yep. things are times when it makes sense to just check in and make sure whatever you've got going still works for your family. Hey, if you liked this content, be sure to like it and subscribe and share it with somebody. And remember, no matter how you're doing and leading your family, God's love for you is huge. And his grace is granted, granted, granted.